The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Continuing this morning, working through the book of Acts, looking at the early history of the church and Christ's work in and through the church by his Holy Spirit. So please turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Now our text this morning is actually Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. But I want to begin reading in Acts 6, starting in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that we could be together in this place this morning hearing your word, uh, worshiping together in song and in, and in prayer. Father, please give to all of us ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to understand and hearts to obey what your spirit is saying to your church this morning through your word. Enable me to proclaim it accurately and boldly. May it penetrate each and every heart here today. For your glory and for your honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, by the time we get to chapter 6 and to Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin, the church has had a significant impact on the city of Jerusalem. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 28, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, meets and the high priest is there. And these are the words of the high priest to the apostles. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, Christ's blood, his death, upon us. And they got that right. The council didn't get a lot of things right, but they got that right. They could see perfectly what was going on, and they didn't like it. These first Christians intended to fill the city of Jerusalem with the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They intended to preach in his name. And when the council had told them to stop, they said, we cannot 
Preaching the gospel was not only a mandate, not only a command, not only a commission, it was the passion of their hearts. They had all been transformed by Christ and they could not contain his message. It went everywhere. The church was growing daily. The Lord was adding to the church daily those that were being saved. There were 3,000 to begin with. Then there were 5,000 men and even more women and children. And by the time we have Stephen standing before the council, the church may have reached as many as 20,000 people. It is literally all throughout Jerusalem. And not only are they preaching the gospel, but they are indicting the council, the leaders of Israel, for the death of Jesus. They are declaring that his blood is on their hands for having sent their own Messiah, whom they have rejected, to be killed by the Romans. And then as the church continues to grow and flourish, it begins to get organized. And we saw this in the first seven verses of chapter 6, which Pastor Caleb taught about last Sunday. And you'll remember they picked some men full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, godly men, wise men, and they give them the responsibility to care for the Hellenistic widows uh, in the church. And those are the Greek-speaking uh, Jewish widows who were being overlooked in the distribution of the food. And as it turns out, these are more than, than just men who serve. These are men who can also communicate the truth. And two of them in particular, Stephen and Philip, are found to be powerful and effective preachers. And in the case of Stephen, we get an insight into his preaching here in chapter 7. And this is an important sermon that we are about to look at by an early church believer, an early church preacher. This is a model of how they preached. And they knew and they understood what Martin Luther knew and understood when he said that the Old Testament is the cradle in which the Christ child is laid. In other words, from the time that the Lord had taught his apostles on the road to Emmaus all things concerning himself and the law of the prophet and the prophets and the testimonies or the writings, they knew the Old Testament meaning unfolded in Christ. And we learn from Stephen that the gospel and the coming of Christ is rooted in God's dealings with Israel, recorded in the Old Testament. And this is exactly the approach that Stephen, in his sermon here in Acts 7, takes. Because he's talking to Jews, and he's talking to the most literate of the Jews, he's talking to the Supreme Court of Israel, so to speak, the Council of the Sanhedrin. And again, as we come into chapter 7, Stephen is on trial. The high priest speaks to him in verse 1 and says, are these things so? Are these charges against you true? The indictment is this against Stephen. Back in verse 11, we have heard him speak, say some, blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And then in verse 13, more false witnesses appear who say, this man, Stephen, incessantly speaks against this holy place, the temple, and the law. So there are Four categories of indictment against Stephen. He speaks against God, he speaks against Moses, he speaks against the law, and he speaks against the temple. And this is the indictment as it stands, as it has been posed by false witnesses. So chapter 7 begins with the council meeting, looking at Stephen, who has the face uh, like that of an angel. Isn't that a beautiful description? And the high priest says, are these things so? Again, this is court. This is Stephen before the Supreme Court. He stands alone. He stands all alone, at least humanly speaking. 
There's no lawyer on his side. There are no attorneys to defend him. There's no jury to be objective. There's no one there to process evidence. He stands alone. He defends himself against these charges of blasphemy. But he's not content to merely defend himself. He will do what they had been doing all along. He will not only defend himself, he will indict them. He will indict the Supreme Court of Israel. And it will cost him his life. Now, as we study the sermon, we want to keep in mind that we're just months removed from the death and resurrection of Christ. Keep in mind that all of the events concerning Jesus Christ happened in the context of this same council, the same Sanhedrin. They are very familiar with everything concerning Jesus. And here, though they thought they had put an end to him by death, the word is everywhere that, no, he's alive. He's alive. And not only is he alive, but his power is on display everywhere through the apostles and even through some men like Stephen. The church has been proclaiming relentlessly that Christ is alive. Christ is the Messiah. Christ is Savior. He has provided redemption. And now they, the, the Jewish religious leaders, they have the same problem they've always had, only the problem has spread beyond Jerusalem, beyond the 11 apostles. It has spread throughout the city. It is literally everywhere in Jerusalem. Uh, the, the apostles have, have commandeered the temple as their meeting place. And uh, these Jewish religious leaders have tried repeatedly up to now to silence these Christians, but they cannot shut them down. They have done everything short of killing them, and we know they will finally do that. As relentless as their persecution is, so relentless is the preaching of the Christians. Powerful in their proclamation, faithful, and thousands upon thousands are coming to believe on a daily basis. The impact is obviously divine. It cannot be measured by some human strategy or some human ideas that were concocted or crafted to make the message successful, as many today try to do. This is all the mighty work of God. And Stephen sees this trial as an immense opportunity to stand before the most illiterate religious body in Israel and speak the truth to them, the truth of his own defense, and then turn the tables and indict them as the real blasphemers. That's exactly what he does. Speaking to Jews, he starts where you always want to start, and that's with the Old Testament. He builds his entire defense and indictment of them from Old Testament history. Is he a blasphemer of God? Moses, the law, and the temple? Well, he defends himself against that again by the things that he says from the Old Testament. Then he turns the tables and indicts them as being blasphemers by tracing them right back through their ancestors who were also blasphemers. They are faithful to their blasphemous, rebellious heritage. And finally, he accuses them of the blood of the Messiah, of murdering the righteous one. And that ultimately triggers their deadly hatred, and they end up dragging him away and stoning him to death. And again, as Stephen stands before the highest religious court in the land to answer charges of blasphemy against Moses and against God, understand that this is the same court that Peter and John recently stood before. 
the same council that Jesus recently stood before. All the same men are there who were at Jesus' trial. All the same men are there who were at Peter and John's trial, including the same high priest, Caiaphas. Undoubtedly, Stephen had been preaching and arguing that since Jesus is our one atoning sacrifice for sin, one atoning sacrifice for all time, since through Jesus alone we receive forgiveness and we receive new life and salvation, that means we don't need anything more than Jesus. This is what he had been preaching. And if all we need is Jesus, well, then we don't need the temple sacrifices anymore. And if we don't need the temple sacrifices anymore, then the temple is unnecessary. And by extension, we see that not only is the Jewish temple unnecessary, but the temple and rituals of any other religion are ineffectual and unnecessary. Stephen has been, in effect, saying Jesus is all we need. He has been going around Jerusalem arguing that Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus is greater than any religion. And it's that aspect of his defense that we're going to focus on today. There's a lot in this sermon. We could look at many things, but I want us to focus today on that aspect of his sermon, what he is saying implicitly and explicitly about the temple. And here in chapter 7, we see Stephen following a traditional Greek rhetorical outline uh, with the heart of his argument really in verses 37 through 53, uh, which is where we'll concentrate our study this morning. Stephen argues that God is not in any one location and that the power of God is not contained in anything built by human hands. God is in the hearts of his believers. And this is not a new idea that Stephen has come up with. This is how God always intended it to be. And for us, this truth applies today. Wherever there are believers, wherever there are those who are believers in Jesus Christ, there exists the church of Jesus Christ. The fact is, the holy place of Jesus Christ resides not in any building, any cathedral, or historical site. The holy place of Jesus Christ resides in your heart, if you are a believer. Amen? Now, we call this the church. I'll tell my wife, I'm going to the church. But this building, we know that, right? This is not the church. This is the building where the church meets. We are the church. And we come together as the church in this building. And, and let us understand, just as a, an aside here, an ap a brief application, you know, true desecration of the Christian church is not like graffiti spray-painted on a church building or even some unholy act performed within the walls of a church building. True desecration of the Christian church is the sin we each harbor within our hearts. Respecting the church uh, is not behaving correctly within the walls of a church building, although we all should do that. Amen? <laughs> Respecting the church is repentance of sin and overcoming of sin in your life. Why? Because, again, the true church resides within, not in any physical building. There are those who do all the right things in church, but in their heart their sin chokes out the work of the Holy Spirit. Better to have a clean heart than hold any position of power or influence within a physical church. Better to have a clean heart uh, than to be respected for what you have done for the physical 
church. Ultimately, we are judged for that which is within the heart. And what is within the heart takes precedence over everything we see happening in the physical church. And as Stephen stands before the Sanhedrin, he's asked a simple yes or no question about his views on the temple. Are these charges true? Yes or no? But Stephen sees an opportunity to offer the gospel. And so he does. Now, he's not simply recounting the history of the Hebrew people. Everyone in the Sanhedrin knows the history by heart. Instead, in the first part of his argument, Stephen is showing two parallel truths. Actually, throughout his argument, two parallel truths. He shows how historically there was no temple, and yet God was still there with his people. And he shows that historically humans have had a hard heart toward God, a rebellious heart toward God. He begins with Abraham in verses 2 through 8. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Again, there is no temple in existence, but still God appears to Abraham. And he appears to Abraham in Chaldea and Haran, which are in modern day Iraq and Turkey of all places not in the holy city of Jerusalem. Then he moves on to Joseph, starting in verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. They rejected him. Here we begin to see the history of God's people rejecting God's chosen deliverer. Now, they had no way of knowing that he was to, to be that deliverer, but nonetheless, they are rejecting Joseph. But God was with him. No temple, right? But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, 
which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced, forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Again, no temple in existence, but God is with Joseph in, in Egypt of all places, not in the holy city of Jerusalem. And note that the ancestors of the Hebrew people rejected, as I said, God's representative Joseph. The history of the hard heart starts right here. Then Moses, and this is the longest section of the sermon. It reviews Moses' life from his birth through the Exodus. Verse 20, at this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Over Well, in fact, God did. <laughs> but they, again, here we see more rejection, right? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness, the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush, the burning bush. No temple, the burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing some wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Now, this, of course, is speaking of who? Of Christ. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven 
as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me to slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Or did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Now he's rehearsing here the, the history of the temple, beginning with the tabernacle, right, in the wilderness. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? All right, again, there is no tabernacle, no, no temple in existence, but God still appeared to Moses in the middle of nowhere, not in the holy city of Jerusalem. And again, the people rejected God's representative saying in verse 27, who made you ruler and judge over us? And later in the desert, they refused to obey Moses. Verse 39, even with the great leader Moses and the presence of God in the midst, in their midst, the people's hearts are hard. And then there's reference to the prophets. Verse 52, which of the prophets did your father, did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Here's the indictment. In fact, let's read 51 through 53. Here's the point of the sermon. I mean, here's where he's been leading all along. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in your heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So we see there is a pattern of the Jewish people rejecting those who represent God. There is a pattern of the hearts of all humanity being hard, so it was no surprise when they rejected the righteous one, Jesus Christ. So in these verses, and I know we just read them in uh, with a little commentary, in these verses, in this sermon, Stephen preaches in response to the accusations of the Jews. He establishes the fact that before the temple existed, God was powerfully with his people. And he establishes the fact that it is our nature to reject the things of God. Stephen is not merely giving a history lesson. He's establishing the fact 
that we should not expect that God will meet with us more in, in, in any one physical location than another. If you only expect to hear the Holy Spirit while you are in church, or if you think you will hear the Holy Spirit in church more clearly than in any other place, Stephen has a message for you. God will speak to his people anywhere, even in the midst of nowhere. And he does that, of course, through his word. Now, yes, it is true that God met with his people when there was no temple, but God did establish the temple. Now, is God being self-contradictory? Why does God allow a temple to, to be built if God's people do not need a temple? And he implicitly answers this. Before the temple, there was the tabernacle, which we just read about, which Stephen in, in, reminds us of in verse 45. And the tabernacle was, in essence, a portable temple. It was a large tent-like structure. Wherever the Hebrew people went in the desert, the tabernacle went. It was easily taken down and easily set back up again. In fact, Stephen points out that for many years after the nation of Israel had settled in the promised land, there was no temple. There was only a tabernacle. The mere existence of the tabernacle further emphasizes the, the, the portability, we can say, of, of God, of how God is in the hearts of the people, not in a building. The tabernacle was not a permanent structure. It was a tent, and the tabernacle was never meant to be permanent, and neither was the temple meant to be permanent. And the temple is built after the floor plan of the tabernacle. And this in itself shows that the temple is not a permanent structure. See, all the things on earth will pass away. All things that is except God himself. And the only permanent temple can be found in relationship with him. Not in a physical structure. The tabernacle and the temple are in essence a shadow of things to come. The tabernacle and the temple are not ends in themselves, but they point to the greater one who has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. King David, Stephen reminds us, wanted to build a house for the name of God, and his son Samuel built, eventually built that temple. But as Stephen saw it, the temple was not the fulfillment of the house that David wanted built. Stephen saw correctly that since the presence of God could not be contained, cannot be contained, the house that was built for God was not a physical temple. The house built for God was the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promise fulfilled of the new house built for the name of God. And verses 49 and 50 are the core of Stephen's argument. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen emphasizes that God cannot be contained. Something even Solomon, the builder of the first temple, said in 1 Kings 8.27, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And though Jewish theology... And Hebrew scripture stated that God cannot be contained. Once the temple was built, there had arisen an attitude that God was somehow more prominent in that one location than any other location. And Stephen is saying, hold on here. Throughout the entire history of the Hebrew people, we have known that God can meet us anywhere. 
Why are we holding up the temple as such a holy place? And, and the reason they were is, is really religious pride. Amen? I mean, it was... It, represented everything to them. Furthermore, the prime function of the temple in Stephen's day had become sacrifice. And even that had taken on the appearance of really uh, a religious money-making scam. Um, but when the first temple was built, its primary function was to be what? A house of prayer. Prayer was to be first and foremost the function of the temple. God wants interaction with his people. God wants a relationship with us, not because he needs that, amen? Not because he is lonely. You ever hear this? God was lonely, so he created us. He needed us. God did not need us, amen? Someone said that yesterday. Um, God did not need us. I mean, somebody said that yesterday, that God did not need us. He, he did not say that God needed us. God does not need us. It's for our benefit and for his glory that he wants a relationship with us. Amen? His glory and our good. Um, but in wanting a relationship with us for his glory, God does not want empty ritual and sacrifice. And we see Jesus commenting on his observance of the temple in disgust when he says in Luke 19, 46, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And Stephen there is insinuating that pagan thought had infiltrated the minds of the religious leadership as they seem to believe that God can somehow be contained in the confines of the temple. Now, Stephen's argument is finished by verse 50. He has shown that God will meet with his people in any location. He has shown that what matters is our hearts, not a physical location. And further, Stephen has shown that we as human beings tend to turn away from God. The modern way to put it would be this. People are not basically good. Amen? We hear it all the time. Oh, people are basically good. It's one of the great lies. People are not basically good. And because we are not basically good, we need Jesus Christ to heal our sin-hard hearts. Stephen had emphasized how the Jewish people, and this extends to all people worldwide, habitually rejected God and his representatives. That includes everyone in the room where the Sanhedrin met that day. That includes everyone in this room as well. Amen? This is why we must understand that Jesus Christ alone is what we need. Not, not, and nothing more and nothing else. Nothing else can take away our sin. Nothing else can give us a new heart. Nothing else can offer us forgiveness. We habitually, by nature, have hardened hearts. We are not people who are basically good. Any attempts to take away sin and to seek forgiveness or seek atonement outside of Jesus Christ are ultimately Futile. Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus is greater than any philosophy. Jesus is greater than any religion. Amen? When we came to Christ, we turned from religion to him. Amen? Now his argument finished. Stephen brings it on home in verses 51 to 53, which we just read. 
when he accuses those in the room as being just like their ancestors, rejecting the representatives of God. They, like all humans, naturally have hard hearts, and they were the ones who personally rejected the righteous one. That is Jesus Christ. And it must really be frustrating to them that this council cannot seem to get rid of this idea that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, first they see Jesus, then Peter and John, and now Stephen, all claiming that Jesus is the one who is the promised Messiah. That's the last thing they want proclaimed. And then finally, Stephen is interrupted by the council when he delivers what would be his final line. You who have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The Sanhedrin has had enough and they burst out in anger. They know where Stephen is heading with his next statements. They know Stephen is going to reiterate that Jesus alone can atone for sin. They know this because they, they recently heard Peter tell them so. Everything that Stephen has said has angered them, so much so that they can no longer contain themselves. But what puts them over the edge is not something about the temple. What puts them over the edge is Stephen's statement about Jesus. Verse 56, and he said, Behold, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You see, church, this isn't all about the temple. This isn't all about Stephen. This is all about who Jesus really is. Remember, we have emphasized this from the very beginning of our look at Acts. The book of Acts is primarily about Jesus, not the church, not the apostles. And, and we say this over and over again, Sunday after Sunday, that this is also true in your life. Your life, once you become a Christian, is not primarily about you anymore, amen? Your life is now about Jesus. Events that happen in your life are not primarily about you anymore. Events that happen in your life are primarily about Jesus. And many of us, even though we have been believers for many years, we still fail to recognize this. Here, we see in our text that the attack that falls upon Stephen is not ultimately about who Stephen is or even what Stephen has said. It is about who the person is. Of Jesus is. Now next Sunday, Pastor Caleb is going to cover in more depth and detail the death of Stephen in verses 54 through 60. So I'm not going to say too much about that except this. When Stephen says that Jesus is at the right hand of God, I mean, this, this throws the Sanhedrin into a rage. The place at the right hand of God is reserved for the most favored person in the Father's sight. And here, by making this statement, Stephen is directly pointing out that Jesus is the Messiah and currently enjoys the great favor of God. Now, unless the Sanhedrin are prepared to admit that their former decision concerning the execution of, of Jesus was wrong, they must now take action against Stephen as well. And really, their action taken against Stephen is really action taken against Christ. Now, in all other references, we see that the Son of Man is sitting at the side of the Father. Here we see that Jesus is standing. And there's a lot of discussion in scholarly circles concerning this. But really, I think it all boils down to this concept. Jesus is standing in Stephen's vision. Because the vision that Stephen sees is the actual event that will momentarily unfold. It is Jesus Christ himself welcoming the believer, Stephen, into his presence. 
we can term this, I guess, a believer's private and personal uh, parousia of the Son of Man. In other words, each believer can expect what amounts to a personal one-on-one time of welcome with the person of Jesus Christ upon their death. When you and I die as believers, the very first thing we will experience is Jesus Christ himself. And this is why the discussion about what is the temple and what is the church is so significant. The presence of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, has opened up a way that is more immediate and much more satisfying, a much more immediate and much more satisfying access than the temple could ever provide. Amen? The temple isn't the place we have to go to worship God. The temple isn't the place we have to go to pray. The temple is not the place we have to go to for atonement. The temple, the church, as I said before, is wherever believers are gathered. You who are believers, you who are followers of Jesus Christ, you are the temple of the Lord God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit lives in you? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? What makes a place the temple of God? The spirit of God. And we've come full circle, so to speak. God met with believers before the temple, and God meets with believers now where there is no temple. And there is no temple. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. We as believers have full and immediate access to God, same as it ever was. And this is something we ought to delight in as believers. Yesterday at the Rooted in Christ conference on the Trinity, Caleb spoke on delighting in the Trinity. Well, we ought always and ever be delighting also in this glorious truth that the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, dwells within every true believer. That the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, dwells in and works in and through his people by his Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. What an incredible reality. Amen? Amen. You recall what happened when Solomon dedicated the temple? It was an amazing scene. There was worship and praise and music and celebration culminating in the very presence of God himself filling the temple. He came visibly in the form of a cloud of glory. Remember that? And so heavy, so weighty was his presence. So weighty was this cloud that those ministering could not even stand to minister under it. Now we look at that and some of us think, oh, if only the church could experience that today. What an awesome experience that must have been. Well, it certainly was an awesome experience. But I have news for you, church. As awesome as that experience must have been, it pales in comparison to the reality we enjoy today as believers. God living in his people. God living in us. And if you told those ministering that day, the day that God's glory filled the temple, if you told those people that one day his glorious presence would fill his people, they wouldn't have believed it. They couldn't have believed it. But it's true. He is Christ in you. He is Christ in his people. And his church is the temple not made with hands, the temple in which he dwells. The earthly temple no longer has any meaning or significance. This was blasphemous to the Jewish religious leaders, and so they dragged Stephen to his death. 
Now, in Jewish law, the witnesses play a very important part in an execution. The witnesses were always the first to put a person to death. And in order to throw the first stones, the witnesses would have to take off their outer garments. And as they do, they place their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And here we see the last words of Stephen, honored by the Lord Jesus Christ. For Saul, who soon becomes the first great enemy of the church, will himself, in a short time, agree with every single word spoken by Stephen. And he will carry out the work that Stephen was headed to, bringing the gospel to those who do not speak Hebrew, right? The church will now scatter across the globe, but as the church scatters, it loses no power. It loses no influence because the church is not contained in any one location more than another location. It is within the heart of each believer. And because the church is in the heart of every believer and it is not a location, the scattered believers begin to preach the word wherever they were scattered to, and they start local churches wherever they were moved to. And soon, where before Christianity had been predominantly in Jerusalem, now Christianity spanned the whole breadth of the Roman world. Instead of silencing Christianity, its persecutors had accomplished exactly the opposite. They had placed Christianity in virtually every part of the known world. And all because of this truth, that the true temple of God is without walls. I'll close with just a few points of application. What are the lessons we can learn from Stephen? Well, I've already mentioned one, delight in the truth of God's presence dwelling in his church, in his people. Secondly, be true worshipers. Be true worshipers. Stephen challenges the church to go forward beyond the temple where they were regularly meeting. The new covenant, understand this, the new covenant is not a postscript to Judaism. It's new. It's different. God is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, anywhere, everywhere, by anyone and everyone who believe. God is bigger than a building. He is to be worshipped in spirit and truth. True believers know that. The Jewish religious leaders were the actual hypocrites. They who worshipped a building. And thirdly, be bold in your evangelism. Be bold in your evangelism. I think that's an obvious one, right? And you will be bold in your evangelism when you delight in his indwelling presence. Just as Pastor Caleb said yesterday, we will be bold in our evangelism when we delight in the Trinity. Amen? Be bold. Be biblical in your evangelism. Declare God's person, power, sovereignty, and framing all of history. Declare God's faithfulness, his promises, Show that the scriptures move unstoppably toward Christ and demonstrate the deep, deep, uh, blind unbelief and hostility toward the truth that has marked mankind throughout history and still marks mankind today. Don't shy away from that. And of course, proclaim the message of the early Christians, the good news of the gospel. That although all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God in his great love has put on human flesh in Christ and has died in our place on the cross. He took upon himself the Father's wrath, merited by our sins, and then God defeated death and sin by raising Jesus from the dead. And now Jesus invites us to newness of life and the forgiveness of sins through repentance and trusting in him. Amen? And if there's anyone here today and you are not trusting in Christ, uh, then you are in the place of these religious leaders indicted by Stephen, you have rejected or are rejecting 
the only one who can take away your sin, grant you forgiveness and eternal life. And I would, I would urge you uh, to stop rejecting Christ and to embrace him through faith and repentance. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, it is so wonderful to be able to look at your word, see its beauty, its magnificence, its consistency. And while it tells the story of redemption, it also tells the story of sin and rebellion. It's all there. And the truth about sin and rebellion make the gospel makes the gospel all the more beautiful, all the more glorious. Truly, you are the God of glory, and you find your glory not only in creation, not only in power, not only in wisdom, but you find your glory manifest to your own satisfaction in mercy, grace, compassion, forgiveness, and redemption of rebellious sinners. And Father, we are also deeply grateful for the example of this godly man, Stephen. We don't know anything about him other than his message and his virtue. We don't know his history, but we know what we need to know. Full of faith, full of wisdom, full of power, full of the Holy Spirit. One of seven chosen out of thousands in the church. Now we know why. And such boldness and such courage. A man with the face of an angel. And even while they're taking his life, he's transfixed on the glory of the one he loved and the one he preached. May we be so bold as Stephen was, so biblical as Stephen was, so clear about sin and rebellion as Stephen was. Use us, we pray, to proclaim your truth, to preach your word, to teach your word, and even to indict those who reject your son. Yes, we are sure that in the boldness of Stephen, there was compassion and love as there always was in the boldness of Christ. May it be for us as well. But never was there equivocating on the truth. Thank you for what we can learn by his boldness. Make us faithful proclaimers of your truth, genuine worshipers, and those who are ever delighting in your presence dwelling within us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.